Um, welcome back. Uh, my name is William Yateman. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I specialize in administrative law. Our second panel will address constitutional structure, um, as it was broached last term. Um, to this end, we're going to discuss three cases. The first will be Gundy v. United States, um, which of course pertain to the non-delegation doctrine. The second will be Kaiser v. Wilkie, which pertain to agent, or a binding judicial deference to agencies' regulatory interpretations. And the third, Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association v. Thomas will pertain to federalism issues. I will address each or I will introduce each speaker in turn. Um, their, their bios um, are in your packets, so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this. I want to leave plenty of time for audience questions at the end. Our first speaker, Roger Pilon, um, perhaps needs no introduction to most in this room. He has been um, perhaps the preeminent force for classical liberalism um, in this city for a long time. He founded the Center for Constitutional Studies here in 1989. He established our brief writing program, which is I mean, the uh, preeminent in the nation to that end. Um, and with special respect to today's events, he founded the Supreme Court Review, the Cato Supreme Court Review, and also had the idea for Constitution Day. So um, please um, welcome Roger, who will be discussing um, Gundy v. United States. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Will, for that brief introduction. Um, I'm going to be discussing, as Will said, the um, Gundy case, uh, which may turn out to be the most important case. The court decided this term, uh, which was a challenge uh, to the way the court uh, for 84 years has read the uh, very first sentence of the Constitution after the preamble. That sentence reads, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress which shall consist in a Senate and a House of Representatives. Now, I think I know what that sentence says because it's in English and as luck would have it, it's my mother tongue. Uh, it says all, not some, all legislative powers, lawmaking powers, that is, shall, not may, shall be vested in a Congress, not in the executive branch, not in the judicial branch. Thus, at issue here is nothing less than the separation of powers. The framers gave us three distinct branches of government, each branch defined functionally. They feared the concentration of powers, yet that's what we have today, in effect, with the rise of the modern executive administrative state. The 400 or more administrative agencies, boards, commissions, and so on in Washington today, nobody knows the exact number, are where most of the regulations, rules, guidance, and so forth that we live under are written, enforced, and adjudicated by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats, because Congress has delegated those powers to those agencies in derogation of its duty, as made crystal clear in that very first sentence, in derogation, in short, of the non-delegation doctrine that emerges from that sentence. Herman Gundy asked the court to restore that doctrine. The court failed him by a vote of 4-1-3. But in that vote lies the promise for the future. And that's what I'm going to be discussing very briefly. 
The court heard the case on the first day of its October 2018 term, yet its decision did not come down until the term's last day on June 20th. We learn why it took so long, perhaps, when we look at those eight votes. Recall that Judge Justice Kavanaugh would be sworn in only at the end of that first week, so the court was looking at a possible 4-4 outcome. As it happened, the court's four liberals, who vote in lockstep much more often than the conservatives, did so again here, led this time by Justice Kagan. Justice Gorsuch's dissent, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, is nearly twice as long. That leaves only Justice Alito, whose one-page concurrence runs all of three paragraphs containing six short sentences, but it contains a wallop. If a majority of this court were willing to reconsider the approach we've taken for the past 84 years, he wrote, I would support that effort. And therein lies the promise this decision may portend. We asked Boston University's Gary Lawson to discuss the decision in this year's Cato Supreme Court Review because his writings over the years on the modern administrative state are so compelling. He hasn't disappointed us. The essay you'll find in your copy of the review is a tour de force, one of the best we've ever published. Gary could not be with us today, so I'll simply summarize his argument to whet your appetite for the real thing. To put the issue in historical context, Gary begins by mentioning Professor Cass Sunstein's quip in 2000 that the non-delegation doctrine has had one good year and 211 bad ones and counting. <laughs> that year was 1935 when the court held not one but two New Deal acts to be unconstitutional because in violation of the doctrine. Clever, Gary writes, but not entirely accurate. Because if you look at our first 150 years, the bite of the doctrine may have come largely from the way that it shaped the drafting of statutes or prevented their enactment altogether. Nonetheless, Sunstein's quip does capture the post-New Deal world. Gary then turns to Gundy's unlikely path to the Supreme Court. In barest summary, Herman Gundy was charged with failure to register as a sex offender under the 2006 Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, or SORNA. Problem is, he pleaded guilty to a second-degree sexual offense in 2005, a year before the act was passed. Thus, the question was whether and how the act applied to pre-act offenders. The non-delegation issue arises because Congress didn't decide whether pre-act offenders needed to register. It simply told the Attorney General to decide the question. And over the interfer interfering years, uh, different AGs have decided it differently. Among other complaints, almost as a throwaway, Gundy objected that Congress was prohibited from outsourcing a fundamentally legislative decision to the Attorney General. Few took that claim seriously, of course, least of all the Second Circuit, which dismissed it in a one-sentence footnote in an unpublished opinion, not unlike 11 other circuit courts that had faced similar SORNA challenges. There were no court splits on the issue and no amicus brief supporting Gundy's cert petition. Yet to the shock of everyone, probably even Gundy's lawyer, the court granted cert, limited to just that delegation question. 
That prompted amicus briefs. In fact, 13 on the merits of varying reach, all supporting Gandhi. Cato's brief was one of several urging the court to reconsider the whole line of cases. Alas, it was not to be. Justice Kagan's plurality opinion puzzled over why the case was even written. As with other delegation opinions, it reached back to the court's 1928 J.W. Hampton decision, which upheld a delegation of lawmaking power as long as Congress provided an intelligible principle to guide executive or judicial discretion. Just what that means has never been clear. It was not clear, for example, when the court told the Federal Communications Commission in its 1943 NBC decision that it could regulate guided by, quote, the public interest, convenience, or necessity. That 1943 decision is generally taken to have marked the end of the non-delegation doctrine. By 1989, in Mistrada v. United States, the court had effectively declared the doctrine non-justiciable. There the court wrote, and I quote, that our jurisprudence has been driven by a practical understanding that in our increasingly complex society, replete with ever-changing and more technical problems, Congress simply cannot do its job absent an ability to delegate power under broad general directives. That's true, I suppose, if Congress thinks its job is to run this increasingly complex society, as it manifestly does. In fact, after parsing Sorna's text in the light of the precedents, Justice Kagan concluded, and again I can quote, I quote, that if Sorna's delegation is unconstitutional, then most of government is unconstitutional. I could live with that. <laughs> Turning briefly to Justice uh, Gorsuch's dissent, Gary calls it a primer on basic constitutional structure and the separation of powers. It could readily be assigned to civics classes, he adds, and no summary can do it justice. Well, if that's true for Gary in his lengthy article, it's true a fortiori for me in this brief comment, so I'll mention just a few issues. At a general level, Justice uh, Gorsuch described the plurality's approach as, quote, working from an understanding of the Constitution at war with its text and history. Although his dissent challenges the plurality's statutory interpretation, its real bite, Gary writes, comes in its head-on challenge to the court's approach to non-delegation since the New Deal. He continues, quoting Gorsuch, a principle against legislative delegation is fundamental to the constitutional order, essential to governmental accountability, and protective of liberty, especially the liberty of minorities who are given an often potent voice through the Constitution's multi-layered, multi-constituency, and complex process for enacting legislation. But the real question, Gary asks, is what's the test? How do we know when Congress has properly delegated legislative power? Gorsuch offers three considerations that might validate what seem like broad grants of discretion to executive or judicial agents. First, as long as Congress makes the policy decisions, it may authorize another branch to fill in the details. Second, once Congress prescribes the rule, it may make the application of that rule dependent on executive fact-finding. And third, 
Congress may assign the executive and judicial branches certain non-legislative responsibilities. So, for example, when a congressional statute converts, confers wide discretion to the executive, no separation of powers problem may arise if the discretion is to be exercised over matters already within the scope of executive power. Those considerations might justify some of the court's modern decisions, Gorsuch believes, but the big problem, he says, is that the court has not been asking those questions. Instead, it's been asking, as in Gundy, whether the statute at issue supplies an intelligible principle. Fair enough, but I'd add that that's not the main problem. Earlier in his essay, Gary moved toward the main issue today when he drilled down on the very term non-delegation doctrine. He prefers the non-subdelegation problem because the delegation of legislative power to the executive and judicial branches is the second step in the delegation equation. The Constitution, Gary writes, is a kind of agency or fiduciary instrument. As fiduciary instruments often do, the document's author or principal, namely we the people, vests authority over some portion of we the people's affairs in certain designated agents. But subdelegation of delegated fiduciary authority, he continues, is strictly forbidden unless it is expressly authorized by the instrument or is incidental by custom or necessity to delegated authority. Accordingly, the principle against delegation of legislative authority is better called the principle against subdelegation of legislative authority. Moving closer to the real issue, Gary writes, and again I quote, the Congress is vested with all legislative powers herein granted, meaning that we the people have entrusted or delegated that particular power to specific institutional actors. Because those actors are fiduciaries, they're not permitted to subdelegate their authority without either specific authorization in the instrument or custom or strict necessity that would make the power of subdelegation an incident to the grant of delegated authority. Still, there's one more step to go. Not surprisingly, or not expressly, but implicitly, Gary's analysis invokes state of nature theory, the legitimating methodology that underpins our political order. But if we take that theory seriously, as the Constitution preamble suggests we should, it means not simply that without such conditions, our political agents cannot subdelegate their authority, but that just as with principles, but that um, just as with principles, we ourselves, we the people, cannot delegate powers to our political agents that we don't first have to be delegated to them. And most of government's powers today go far beyond any powers we ever had to, delegated, to delegate to government. In short, we cannot ask government what we do not ourselves have a right to delegate because we don't have it. Few are prepared to go that far, of course, despite the logic of the matter. What remains, then, is the more immediate question implicit in Justice Alito's faux concurrence. Where does the court go from here? 
And on that question, Gary speculates very tentatively about the missing voice, Justice Kavanaugh's. In a future case, would Kavanaugh join the three dissenters, enabling Alito to come on board too? And would the resulting opinion reflect Justice Gorsuch's somewhat limited reform or the broader reform that Gary has in mind? That may depend, Gary speculates, on whether Justice Kavanaugh turns out to be a judicial constitutionalist or originalist or a judicial conservative, more concerned with judicial modesty than constitutional fidelity. We can thank Justice Gorsuch for putting delegation back in play. Now let's see what the court does with it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roger. Our second speaker um, will be presenting his paper on Kaiser v. Wilkie is Paul Larkin. And I've got to read this to make sure I get this correct. He is the John, Barbara, and Victoria Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. I'll note that Paul has one of those, those resumes that I really, really admire. Um, he has worked at the highest levels of all three branches of government. He was high at the DOJ. He was high on congressional committee staff. Um, and indeed, he's a, a, he clerked for Bork on, the, on, the, on a circuit court. Um, I, I think that's really, really impressive. He was also very successful in the private sector. So um, please welcome Paul Larkin. I'm honored to be here today in the midst of such other august speakers. I want to thank Cato for inviting me to come and speak on this subject. And I hope that during the time I have, I can at least, even if not illuminate some of the issues, at least entertain you a little. Now, to start at that, I'm going to ask you all a question. How many of you are New York Yankees fans? OK, a fair number. The rest, the rest of you are New York Yankees fans in training. At least that's the way I look at it. The reason I say that is uh, I think that Justice Kavanaugh was right in the footnote in his concurring opinion in this case where he used a baseball analogy to try to talk about agency deference. As he put it, you don't turn in the middle of the game to the home team coach and ask him what the ground rules are, OK? So let me start with the Yankees. Those of you who are Yankee fans are very familiar with the 1927 team, excuse me, 1927 team uh, known as Murderer's Row. They had six or seven players that wound, including the manager, that wound up in the Hall of Fame. They won 110 out of 154 games. They were never out of first place. And they swept the Pirates in the World Series 4-0. They essentially had one of the greatest records in baseball of all time. Now compare that to the 1966 Yankees. The 1966 Yankees had two Hall of Famers, Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. But they were at the nadir of their careers, and the rest of the team lacked all the punch of the 27 Yankees. The Supreme Court's decision in Seminole Rock was like the 1927 Yankees. 
In Seminole Rock, the Supreme Court dealt with the question of whether an agency's interpretation of a rule that the agency had created was entitled to deference. And the Supreme Court said not only is it entitled to deference, it is effectively binding on the courts as long as it is not completely inconsistent with the text of the rule itself, which is a nice way of saying if the agency is remotely literate, what they think their rule means is what it means. If you look at the success that the federal government had, and the federal government was the intended beneficiary of this rule, you will find that the federal government prevailed in 75 to 90% of the cases where the meaning of an agency rule was the gravamen of what was going on in a case. I mean, that's a success record that even the 27 Yankees couldn't have hoped for. Now, everyone seemed in the legal community just to accept that until 1996, when then professor, now dean, John Manning wrote an article talking about this whole issue in separation of powers terms. He said that the deference given to an agency's interpretation of its own rules was materially different from the deference that was given to an agency's interpretation of a statute. One reason why was in the case of deference to an agency's statutory interpretation, which goes by the name Chevron deference, at least you have the fiction, which is more a lie than a fiction, but we can call it a fiction. Among friends, we'll call it a fiction. Uh, that Congress gave the agency this authority to do that. Well, when the agency is granting itself authority it doesn't have, that fiction just goes out the window. And secondly, it is a, uh, an incentive-creating device that leads to bad results, because it gives the agency the ability to avoid saying anything controversial when it adopts a uh, rule through notice and comment. And then later, in a guidance document, decide that, oh, no, it really does support something that we were trying to do uh, in a different way. I mean, witness the bathroom rule that came out during the uh, last administration. So what you have is a mistaken look at the comparison between statutes and rules. And all of a sudden, conservatives awoke. The academy started seeing large numbers of articles being written saying that the Supreme Court should get rid of Seminole Rock, as well as, believe it or not, its great-grandson, Our, which ironically was written by Justice Scalia. Now, the problem with both of those decisions is, in neither case did the Supreme Court give any rationale why it adopted this rule of automatic and binding deference. It didn't say the Constitution required it, that a statute required it, or anything else. If anything, it just simply rested on, I guess, the common sense proposition that if you wrote it, you know better what it means than anybody else. But the Supreme Court had justices start becoming persuaded by this. Even Justice Scalia, before he died, admitted he had made a mistake in Auer. And the, uh, the effect was, for the last 10 years, Auer was essentially, at, and Seminole Rock were essentially under a death watch. The only question was, when was the Supreme Court going to take a case, and how many votes were there going to be to overturn it? Kaiser versus Wilkie wound up being that case. The case itself has you know, facts that don't distinguish it from many other types of benefit cases that come along. Uh, what you had was a circumstance where a former Marine was trying to obtain veterans' benefits uh, from a certain date, and 
the Veterans Administration, relying on one of its rules, said, no, that's not the date we have to use to decide when to calculate the beginning of your benefits. So it goes up to the Supreme Court, because in that sense, it quite clearly squarely presented the Seminole Rock Hour case. If you look at the amicus briefs filed in that case, you would have been willing to bet a large amount of money that the Academy essentially decided to husband its resources to defend Chevron rather than defend Auer and Seminole Rock. Because there were two or three at most amicus briefs defending those cases, whereas there were a dozen or more challenging them and asking the court to get rid of them. And so if you were a betting man, you would have put money on the fact that the Supreme Court was going to reverse. And if you did, you lost. Because what happened was we wound up seeing the Supreme Court essentially, rather than overrule those cases, just completely rewrite them. That was done in an opinion by Justice Kagan for four people, joined by Justices Breyer, uh, uh, Sotomayor, and uh, Ginsburg. Then you had four justices who said, no, we should throw out the old agency deference cases. That was an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh. But you then had an opinion by Justice Roberts that had not a foot, but maybe a couple toes in the, major, in the lead opinion by Justice Kagan, and left the rest of it up in the open. He joined Justice Kagan's opinion insofar as Justice Kagan said stare decisis doesn't justify or rather counsels against overturning our old decisions. And then she goes on and also de demonstrates that what those old cases really meant is what Chevron means today. That's all Justice Roberts joined. That's the only majority in the opinion. Everything else Justice Kagan wrote is for four and everything else that, and everything that uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote is for four. But it's good to read the, the Kagan opinion because it is a masterful job of lawyering. Why? She starts out trying to make not legal points, but common sense points. What does she say? She says, can language adequately capture every circumstance where we're trying to decide whether a, a law, and law is just words, can describe whether the government can or must or should or should not do something. And the answer, it, which answers itself, is no. We've known since the time of Wittgenstein that the term game, for example, is a term that has a core meaning, and it, like all other terms, have very vague and ambiguous meanings at the periphery. So it's not clear to, uh, to anyone that language can solve this problem. Then she shifts over and says, okay, if language can't solve this, if language can't tell us whether uh, a scientific issue uh, is adequately disposed of by certain laws, who's the best person to deal with? And the best person to deal with in that circumstance is the scientist who deals with this issue. Once she gets those two propositions established, the agency is playing a home game from here on out. Because from this point forward, in her opinion, she has persuaded the reader to want to rule in the agency's favor, to want to give the agency the authority to be the final word on the interpretation of whether the term an active moiety includes a moiety that has a lysine added to it. Okay? 
She, she particularly loved that example. She referred to it four times in her opinion, one of which was in a footnote, which thankfully explained what it meant for the 99 plus percent of lawyers that would otherwise been bewildered by what she was talking about. So at this point, the only thing left for her to do is try to tie this in somehow to law. Because remember, at no point in her opinion does she say that Seminole Rock and Auer are right. Or at no place in her opinion does she say uh, that the, here is the rationale that we adopted in those cases, because there really wasn't the rationale that was adopted in those cases. So what she says instead is, well, we'll just use Chevron. Everybody has misinterpreted what those old cases mean. So now we'll take Chevron and we'll incorporate the entirety of what Chevron does into this entire undertaking. You have Chevron step one, is the rule clear? If it is, EOC, end of case. If it's not, then you move on to section two or step two. And at step two, you have to consider a variety of things. Is this the agency's official position? Is it adopted simply to defend a result in court in litigation? Uh, does it reflect the agency's scientific know-how? In other words, is there a good argument why the agency is better at interpreting this law than a generalist judge. And that brings in all of Chevron in this regard. And by the way, the, the other move she makes that's brilliant in this opinion is the following. She goes through the whole application of Chevron and tries to leave the reader with the impression that Chevron and is the new Seminole Rock and Hour. Uh, she'll still call it our deference, although in fact it should be called Kaiser deference. But it, it's rarely going to apply. It, it comes up only uh, in rare instances where a court can't figure out what a rule means. And even then, you have these other the steps that the agency has to prove. Well, well, guess what? In the next part of the opinion where she's talking about stare decisis, all of a sudden, everything she talked about before gets transformed. And the whole question uh, turns what was a singles hitter into a home run hitter. Because she says, if we threw out uh, Seminole Rock an hour, we would have an effect on administrative law like the Tunguska event of 1908. Okay? Which is remarkable when you think about it. Her entire discussion of stare decisis could have been one sentence that said, we don't have to decide whether to overrule those cases because they don't exist anymore. We just read them out of the US uh, reports. So it's, it's brilliant in, her, in the way she does this, and in, uh, it's a masterful use of the judicial craft. Now, Justice Gorsuch approaches it like a lawyer. He says, basically, there's no justification anywhere for the rule we made up in Seminole Rock, not the Constitution, not a statute, uh, not the common law. Uh, and look at all the problems it's created. Okay? For example, in what other area of the law has the court legitimately made up a rule that allows the government to win 75 to 90% of the cases? That shows a bi that the court has created a rule that's biased in favor of the one party that shows up most often in federal court and is best able to persuade the Congress to adopt this rule if it wants to. So Gorsuch found that there was no justification for Seminole Rock and that its illegitimacy didn't get cured over time. The Roberts opinion, however, gave two portions of the Kagan opinion the status of a majority. So even though all nine voted to reverse the lower court judgment, 
Only those two parts are the parts of the majority. Now, I know that given the hope of dealing with Seminole Rock and Hour as a way of starting to cut back on the administrative state, there were a lot of people that were very disappointed when this happened. But if you read Robert's opinion carefully, in the long run, it offers at least three hopes in this regard that maybe, maybe they will revisit this issue. Okay? One is we don't know how this rule is going to be applied in the lower courts. And if it can't consistently and reasonably be applied, even he has recognized in the past that is a rationale for overturning a precedent that is not capable of reasoned application. Secondly, he didn't address the Gorsuch point about the bias inherent in the old rule of Seminole Rock and Hour. So if the new rule winds up with the same 75 to 90% success rate, that issue will come back. Okay? And finally, he didn't address the question of whether the APA deals with this issue. Kagan said, no, the APA doesn't require we throw out Seminole Rock and Hour. She was joined by three. Gorsuch said it does. He was joined by three. So it's a, an even vote in that regard. That will come up again. In fact, it may come up again in one of the other contexts that in the short run is going to come up, which is what happens to Chevron. It may well be that the chief realized if he rules Along, if he votes along with Justice Gorsuch and concludes that the APA requires Seminole Rock and Hour to be thrown out, the APA would also require that Chevron be thrown out. And since there was no need to do that in this case because they were going to reverse the judgment, it may well be more sensible just to wait and see how that issue percolates in the lower courts. There is no doubt over the course of the next couple of terms, numerous people are going to be asking them to revisit Chevron. Secondly, the APA isn't the only relevant statute. There's a statute called the Congressional Review Act passed during the Clinton administration. That statute says every rule before it can, quote, go into effect has to be submitted to Congress so that Congress has the opportunity to review it, and if it doesn't like it, pass, you know, pass a bill for the president's signature to overturn it. Well, any time an agency adopts some policy or interprets some statute or rule, they have adopted a new rule for purposes of the Congressional Review Act. And if what they've done in a regulation or other rule is unclear, that new one should not receive any deference. Remember, the statute says the rule is not in effect. You can't give deference to a rule that is not in effect and still comply with the congressional review. Finally, one last area where it's going to come up, and I know a cert petition has already been filed on this in the bump stock case. What happens when the government is not handling something as a civil matter or an administrative matter, but a criminal matter? We know from a series of opinions authored by Justice Scalia that where a statute can be enforced civilly and criminally, you have to read it as if it's only being enforced criminally. As he put it, the lowest common denominator has to govern. Fine. <coughs> 
Anytime you have a statute or a regulation, because regulations will implement statutes, those of you who are familiar with environmental law know that the term hazardous waste is only partially defined in the statute and is uh, also defined in EPA regulations. Anytime you have the government trying to get deference for a statute or a rule that it's adopted in a criminal context, you raise a whole host of issues that she neither Chevron nor Kaiser at all discussed. That's going to come up as well. So the bottom line is this. The Supreme Court started down this road by making up in Chevron like it had made up in Seminole Rock a rule allocating interpretive responsibilities to people outside the judicial branch. And it's one thing to say you're going to respect the judgment of a learned scholar. If you have an evidentiary issue, you would certainly want to know what Wigmore had to say about it. And you might even, at the end of the day, decide because he is so learned in this field, he's probably right, and you would agree with him. But it's agreeing with him that matters rather than just handing the decision maker, the decision making responsibility over to somebody else. That's what cases like Kaiser dealt with. We will find out over the next few years what happens next. The bottom line, the deference wars have had a truce, but they're not yet over. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, our third speaker, Braden Busek. Busek, I'm sorry. Uh, the, uh, many, uh, we had a, a staff debate as to how to pronounce that last name, and I was able to gain clarification before this. Um, he's been a litigator since 2001, first as a prosecutor for the state of Tennessee, and then for the federal government as a district attorney. In this capacity, he's fought all sorts of bad guys, including terrorists and organized crime. As I was researching your bio, um, it struck me that you would make a perfect character in Law & Order SVU or, or one of these shows. Like He's got the look and the background. But he'll be discussing um, a case that touches upon federalism, Tennessee Wine, Wine and Spirits Retailers Association v. Thomas. So thank you very much. Please welcome him. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, I personally am in a position to say as a former state and federal prosecutor, I've encountered no foe more devious and more loathsome than your typical Tennessee regulatory board. Uh, <laughs> that brings me to the subject uh, I'm here to talk about today uh, and Tennessee's regulation of alcohol and how that was given treatment by the Tennessee Supreme Court. Before I do, I first want to extend a, a real heartfelt thank you to Cato for having me here. I'm tremendously honored as just this uh, country litigator, as far as I see it, and from Tennessee, to be invited here on this stage. It's a great honor to be with Roger and Paul, but uh, it's somewhat intimidating. I've been joking to my friends back home that I sort of feel like the uh, lemon starburst in this proverbial packet, um, and you're just going to have to just chew through this before you get to the good stuff. Uh, but uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, and uh, unless I've misjudged my audience, I have the good fortune of talking about a subject matter that's probably near and dear to everybody here, or at least most of you, uh, that being constitutional governance and good liquor. Um, how many people here are fans of either or both of those? <laughs> I've got you beat. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I don't know about you, but when I think about Tennessee liquor, I don't really think about the law. I think about country music. Um, and I'm a native Nashvilleian, so maybe I'm playing to the part just a little bit. But forgive me for thinking that the impact of the subject matter reminds me of a George Jones song, Tennessee Whiskey, or a personal favorite of mine, Copperhead Road by uh, Steve Earle. Feel free to download uh, each from your uh, favorite streaming service. Well, the Tennessee Supreme Court was going to get its chance to address the subject with the so-called Tennessee Wine and Spirits case, which is the Supreme Court's most recent foray into what we refer to as the so-called Dormant Commerce Clause. And the case wound up telling us just as much about the Supreme Court's future in reviewing state regulations of commerce, as well as it tells us about what the 21st Amendment, which ended prohibition, does and does not say. And also, in an interesting offshoot of this case, it tells us a great deal about the limits of a government's power to exercise its police powers, which is an amorphous topic whose expansion since the founding has done as much as anything else to alter the role between citizen and the government. So no matter what you'd say about whether Tennessee whiskey had brought out the best in songwriters like, say, George Jones, and I, for one, would say that it has, Tammy Wynette would say that it did not. Uh, it has certainly not brought out the best in the authors of Tennessee laws. The subject of the case in question created what I'm going to refer to as the durational residency requirement or durational requirement. And under that law, Tennessee had required a person to become a Tennessee resident for two years before a person could have a license to sell wine or alcohol. Um, they actually also made it so that the license was only effective for one year and you had to be a Tennessee resident for 10 years to apply for a renewal license. This, by the time this got to the Supreme Court, however, we were only considering the first law because uh, the lower courts struck down the other ones and uh, they were not the subject of the cert petition. Now, to backtrack a little bit, uh, for those unfamiliar with the Dormant Commerce Clause or uh, what it refers to, the protection of the free flow of interstate commerce was a topic at the founding. The founders were well aware of a problem that had existed under the Articles of Confederation, that being states erecting interstate barriers to commerce that were designed to bestow particular benefits upon their own individual citizens. And the way Congress, or excuse me, the way the Constitution addressed that was under the so-called Commerce Clause, which awarded Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. It did not take long before the Supreme Court injected itself and into the Commerce Clause a certain negative or inverse component that applies to the states. That is, that while the Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, the Dormant Commerce Clause, as understood by the Supreme Court, also contains a power to negatively prohibit states from erecting undue barriers to interstate commerce. So naturally, something that so nakedly favors the in-state interests of Tennesseans over out-of-state's interests is profoundly disruptive to interstate commerce. 
And under the facts of this particular case, there were two parties, Total Wine and Spirits. I don't know if you, you guys have Total Wine out here. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, great store. Total Wine was, <laughs> was one of the plaintiffs in the case. They were not allowed to open business in Tennessee. And the other involved a family called the Ketchum family, and I think their story is really engaging. The Ketchum family was a, a couple in Utah, um, and they had a special needs daughter. Uh, her lung had collapsed, and her doctors had advised them to take the family and relocate to a more healthful climate. Um, I guess they didn't listen to their doctor because they ended up in Memphis. Uh, and uh, I've got a friend, by the way, who uh, is an anesthesiologist in Memphis. And he says, you know, in Memphis, you always see in the chest x-rays this gray in the lungs. And I, and I said, what is, why? Why would there be only in Memphis? And he said, well, there's actually some strange fungus that grows in the banks of the Mississippi. And only Memphis residents will have this thing display in there. It's har harmless according to him, but <laughs> anyway, so the Ketchum family ended up in Memphis, cashed in their life savings, and they actually knew that this law had existed. The Tennessee Attorney General's office had issued two opinions concluding that the law was uh, unconstitutional, and the ABC was not therefore enforcing the law. So before moving and relocating and cashing in their savings, they got a uh, co commitment from the Alcohol and Beverage Commission that they would um, be able to get a license. When they actually got to Tennessee and was about to set up shop along with Total Wine, the Tennessee uh, Wine and Spirit Retailers Association threatened to sue the state of Tennessee unless they started actively enforcing this licensure law. As someone that sues Tennessee licensing boards with a great deal of regularity, I can personally tell you it's not usually a problem to get them to enforce the laws, but that's what happened here. And thus we had a somewhat unusual posture in that who you typically think were the plaintiffs were actually initially the defendants in this case. Um, anyway, uh, to return to the, the actual issue here, this is profoundly disruptive and nakedly favors in-state interests over out-of-state interests. So how was it that something like the durational residency requirement enacted in the 1930s still on the books? How was this case hard at all, let alone hard enough to get to the United States Supreme Court? Well, as is typically the case, alcohol lies at the root of the problem. And while there are new two ways about it, if this case was about anything other than alcohol, this really would never have been a case in the first place. It is undoubtedly true that the courts would have struck this down a long time ago if we'd been talking about cabbages, apples, candlesticks, anything other than alcohol. But it's equally true that alcohol is just different. Alcohol has a distinct constitutional history within our governmental system. Remember, it was prohibited under the 18th Amendment and then reinstated under the 21st Amendment. And it was that reinstatement that gives rise to the justification that states can just do things when it comes to regulating alcohol that they could not do with any other article in interstate commerce. Now, if you reflect on your own personal experiences, you have undoubtedly observed some of the very strange goings-on that occur when states elect to distribute alcohol. Tennessee, like any number of states, employs what's called the three-tier system. Under a three-tiered system, you are either a producer of alcohol, a wholesaler of alcohol, or a retailer of alcohol. 
you are one of the three and cannot be any combination of them. But all alcohol distributed in Tennessee has to go through this production scheme, and they cannot merge. And the three-tier system is this old FDR, New Deal method for addressing alcohol back post-prohibition when there was a real anxiety that we're going to go back to the bad old days uh, pre-prohibition when alcohol consumption is a real problem at the time in the nation. But at any rate, the argument here all traces back to the 21st Amendment, which ended prohibition. Now, we think of prohibition, or we think of 21st Amendment in very uh, stark terms. We think of it just ending prohibition, which it did in Section 1. There's a second section, however, Section 2, that provides that notwithstanding the ending of prohibition, the transportation or importation into any state for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws is hereby prohibited. And so the argument goes that the Constitution contains a specific grant of powers to the state to regulate the importation and distribution of alcohol that makes its regulation constitutionally different. And so the constitutional problem here can really be framed in its starkest terms thusly. It takes one immovable object, which is that states can't discriminate in favor of their own citizens, and then smashes it into another one. And that's the idea that states have special constitutional power to regulate alcohol under the 21st Amendment. So uh, to make matters even more complicated, the very idea of a dormant commerce clause is itself somewhat controversial, particularly among judicial conservatives. Justice Thomas numbers among the critics who do not think that there was, in fact, such a thing as a dormant commerce clause. And by the time this case got there, there were, in fact, two new justices who had never issued formal judicial opinions on the subject. And no matter their affinity for open markets personally, many of these judicial conservatives view the dormant commerce clause as essentially a judicially created doctrine that lacks a textual basis in the Constitution. Remember, the Constitution only says what Congress does, but it doesn't say what states may not do. Notwithstanding this criticism, the Dormant Commerce Clause has long played an important role for the court as it shapes the interplay between federal and state economic regulation. Now, by the time the court ultimately issued an opinion, it wound up delivering a commanding 7-2 majority that struck the law down under the Dormant Commerce Clause theory. So first and foremost, it uh, reaffirms, I think resoundingly, the idea that the Dormant Commerce Clause is going to continue to play an important role in judicial review of state regulation of interstate commerce. And I, again, from my personal experience, um, earlier in the spring, I filed a lawsuit when Tennessee passed a law declaring that online auctions, websites, were themselves auctions requiring a Tennessee auctioneer's license. If you're wondering what an auctioneer, an online auction is, I'd say to think about eBay, but they specifically exempted eBay under the statute's rubric. But think about eBay, assuming eBay didn't have the lobbying clout that eBay has. But that was now something that was going to uh, come under Tennessee's licensing regime, and we advanced a dormant commerce clause uh, argument. And when I appeared for a hearing in front of the district court judge, who was a recent new Trump appointee, the first thing he said, and this was about two weeks after the, the Tennessee wine opinion, he goes, so I guess the dormant commerce clause is still a thing. I said, I guess it is, Your Honor. Um, 
But the decision in the end wound up being as much about what the second section of the 21st Amendment meant, and it winds up leaving a great number of alcohol laws, particularly those if you are in a three-tier state, on very uncertain footing. In a nutshell, the court ruled that Section 2 of the 21st Amendment only allowed states to enact the sort of laws that would have been permissible prior to prohibition. And then the court went on to say that those things had to be legitimate exercises of the police powers in the first place, meaning that they have a real and substantial tendency to promote the public's health, safety, and welfare, which a law saying you gotta be a Tennessee resident for two years did not uh, accomplish. But while the court ultimately accepted that something like the three-tier system was legitimate on its own, it would not agree that any law enacted as part of a three-tier scheme was necessarily immune from dormant commerce clause scrutiny altogether. Instead, the court reiterated that laws needed to be closely related to the powers reserved by the amendment in the first place before the courts would feel some compunction to extend greater solicitude to the state on account of it being an alcohol-related regulation. And this was rather an extension of a trend the court had been on for a long time. The court had, in its first wave of post-21st Amendment cases, essentially said Section 2 of the amendment largely exempts the regulation of alcohol from constitutional analysis altogether. That's a, a, an overgeneralization, but it's largely true as a rule. The absolute, absolutist reading of uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause, that alcohol means states can do anything and escape the Dormant Commerce Clause, had long fallen out of favor. Consider the 1976 case of Craig v. Boren. That concerned an Oklahoma law that said that men could buy alcohol at age 21, but women could buy it at age 18. There are probably any number of lawyers here who, like me, and like every other lawyer, was taught this case as an equal protection case in law school, and indeed it is. It flagrantly violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But one of the defenses that Oklahoma offered up was, we're good, court, because this is an alcohol regulation, and Section 2 of the 21st Amendment exempts us from equal protection analysis. The court didn't buy that in Craig v. Boren, and that generally shows the court's attitude towards this argument as it grows over time, essentially cabining this thought that Section 2 means you get a constitutional blank check. It remains true for legislators as it does for the rest of us. It might seem like a good idea to overdo it with alcohol at the time, but excess will lead to regret. And a line of cases mostly continues along this way, but there had already been this question about when you came to the actual retail level of the three-tier, where the state interest in controlling the dissemination of alcohol within its own borders reaches its highest, would states enjoy even greater near-absolute control as to, the, as to dictate how alcohol was disseminated? Many states, for instance, have physical presence requirements for retailers of alcohol, and all the courts seem to think that that is just fine. So was a durational residency requirement going to be more along the line of a physical presence requirement or not? Tennessee Wine said no. The 21st Amendment only restored state authority to its pre-prohibition state, 
And so the split between the majority and the minority was largely based on a disagreement over the understanding of the history of alcohol regulation, pre-prohibition included. But the dissent did not disagree that that's what the 21st Amendment was designed to do, only restore those powers to its pre-prohibition state. And because the majority had concluded that a law like this one would never have been a valid exercise of the state's police powers in the first place, more on that momentarily, it was not shielded by the special authority afforded by the 21st Amendment's umbrella. The law needed to have, and I quote, a real and substantial relation to the promotion of public health or safety to have been valid under the law at the time. Assessing the purported rationales put forth by the state of Tennessee, the court did not find them convincing, and so the law stood as nothing more than bare protectionism of in-state interests and was thus unconstitutional. But this case leaves us with some rather substantial, so what comes next? First and foremost, the line drawing involved in which alcohol laws are predominantly protectionism and which are integral to the three-tier system. Many state alcohol laws are essentially free-for-alls. I don't have to tell you that when these laws were written under the assumption that anything goes when it comes to booze, they weren't written with a great deal of worry about how they would survive under judicial scrutiny. Like the proverbial trip to Vegas, in other words, not much thought was given to consequences. But it, it's no longer true that what happens in Vegas is going to stay in Vegas. It's more like someone went out there with the work phone and took pictures, they're on the camera, and now the boss is going to be scrolling through them. So what about some of these laws? What about things like residency requirements? And I'll do you one better, what about other, quote, vice distribution schemes other than alcohol? Many states now allow for the distribution of marijuana. And some of those states have citizenship requirements that are quite similar to the one that the Supreme Court just struck down. Now, there's no 21st Amendment, but on the other hand, the express federal policy is prohibition. How are those going to shake out? Second, what about the alternative theories to challenge laws like the durational residency requirement? Now, clearly, seven justices are on board with the vitality of the Dormant Commerce Clause as a constitutional doctrine. And interestingly, the two dissenting justices, Gorsuch and Thomas, dropped a footnote to signal that they're on board with the idea that some alcohol-related restrictions might be so absurd as to fail the rational basis test. But those two justices have, signaled, have also signaled an interest in the Privileges or Immunities Clause revitalization as an alternative theory that could potentially be used to invalidate laws just such as this one. Now, this was not the right case for procedural reasons to uh, consider whether or not this license would have failed under a privileges or immunities clause. As it happened, the Capsham family belatedly advanced that alternative argument in front of the Supreme Court, hoping that they would get one or both of the justices to bite, and neither of them did. And in fairness, uh, the, the issue had really not been properly preserved below, and so nobody really talked much about it. But there might be another future case where those kind of justices can get on board in a concurrence, but under a different rationale. The third and final point I'll make concerns the future of the police powers. As I mentioned in my opening, this is largely an, era, an area where the government has asserted power that has become largely overgrown and untended by the judiciary because of the large standing assumption 
that this is primarily a legislative function when the state purports to be exercising its police powers. But here the court did not mince words about the limitations on a government's police powers. In cabining the police powers to only those which have a, quote, bona fide relationship to public health, morals, or safety, the court was relying on a late 19th century case, Muggler v. Kansas, which was itself a seminal rational basis case brought under the 14th Amendment. So by relying on it, was the court suggesting the possibility that someone could have brought a direct 14th Amendment challenge to the state's dubious reliance upon its police powers in the enactment of this law. After all, many of our silliest licenses are naked protectionism, but not for in-state residents, but rather particular interest groups. Think of licenses to shampoo hair. That existed in Tennessee. It no longer does or licenses to challenge or licenses to become an interior designer or a florist. These are not susceptible to dormant commerce clause challenges because they apply equally to in-state and out-of-state residents, but no one could seriously claim that they advance actual public health or safety challenges without cackling into their armpit. As it stands, there's actually a currently a circuit split on the question of whether it is even a legitimate state goal to protect a discrete interest group under the federal rational basis test. But if the Muggler standard is utilized going forward, then judicial review will, re re even under these 14th Amendment cases, will resemble the Tennessee wine version of judicial review. And that means it will involve more than uncritical acceptance of stated rationales from government attorneys and it will refine the standard for judicial evaluation of a much broader range of economic, li economic licensure beyond just the regulation of alcohol. I'm delighted that you all had me. I'm happy to have further discussion. Uh, afterwards, at the reception, you'll find me near the bar, and I don't really care how long you've lived in the particular state or the district. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Braden. And uh, I should note in my rush to, to get to how cool his resume is, I omitted mention of where he currently works now. So he is the Vice President um, for Legal Affairs at the Beacon Center of Tennessee. And you can check out his work there. We have, um, looks like we have 12 minutes for questions. So I'm going to forego the moderator's privilege and go straight to the audience. The same rules as last time. Please wait to be called on. Um, please don't ask the question until you have the microphone so our online listeners can hear. And then please announce your name and affiliation. And with that, I'll open up to the audience. I saw David Schneer's hand back there. David Schneer, Thomas Jefferson Institute. Having had the privilege of arguing Dormant Commons Clause before then Judge Gorsuch, uh, not with much of a happy outcome. Uh, I suggest to you that one area in which you're going to want to look and put some attention is not the unfair, uh, the balance between in-state and out-state. It's the extension of a state law beyond the borders into another state. There's a circuit split on that now. Uh, Gorsuch took the view that the electric power industry was a free market that could uh, a, a deal with anything and completely ignored the regulatory state. And I think what we're going to have to see is some more attention given to Dormant Commerce Clause. I don't think that issue is anywhere close to being concluded. Thank you. 
Braden Divas. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, and the species of dormant commerce clause challenge you're talking about is the extraterritoriality doctrine. Um, and I, I probably unnecessarily dwelled in it in my law review because I, I agree with you. I do think it's um, a, an area that's ripe for explosion in the internet era. And of course, I came across this really when I was doing my online auction case. But it's really very difficult to regulate or to license a, um, an online business without inherently imposing some kind of extraterritorial problems. And that was the theory that uh, our district court judge in our online auction case essentially uh, endorsed um, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, Devin Watkins, I see him in there in the center. <coughs> David Watkins, Competitive Enterprises 2. Um, at my suggestion, the uh, Federal Defenders in Gundy has filed a petition for rehearing. What do you think the chances of that petition are? And if it's granted, how do you see this play out in the next term? Gundy question? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, perhaps, uh, Devin, could you? Uh, yeah, speak a little more clearly. I didn't. Could you uh, speak a little louder? Because I couldn't quite hear the first part of that question, too. So at my suggestion, the uh, federal defenders have filed a petition for rehearing in Gundy to allow Justice Kavanaugh to uh, participate in the decision. Um, my question was, what do you think the odds of the court granting such a petition and how it might play out in the next term if they do grant it? I think it's for you. I have no idea, Devin. <laughs> speculating about the court? No. Tough to prognosticate Supreme Court futures, to be sure. Um, gentleman here, please. Ilya Selman, George Mason University. Uh, a very small note, and then a, also a question about gunning. The note is that uh, the, the Craig versus Boren case actually concerned 3.2% beer, not alcohol generally. So there was a gender, sex discrimination on that particular very important type of beer, but not on the rest. The question about okay. Gundy is this. if. Justice Gorsuch opinion or something like it eventually becomes the law, how big of a practical effect will it have? Because as Gary Lawson points out in the article he wrote for you guys, uh, um, or for, for, for the review, uh, there, he still leaves potentially a lot of room for discretion. He's careful to emphasize that it won't actually, uh, this won't prejudge what the proper scope of federal government power is. He says that uh, there can still be delegation to fill in the details of statutes and also some other matters as well. So I wonder you know, what would be, you know, if, if, if the majority that may have been latent in Gundy is eventually assembled uh, and, you know, Gorsuch prevails, uh, how much actual reduction of delegation would there be? Yeah, that raises the elephant in the room issue, as you know, from having looked at the piece. The 300,000 regulations that are uh, at risk, and I don't think that we're going to see, just as in the um, enumerated powers cases, more generally Lopez, Morrison, et cetera, we're going to see, if anything, just a chipping away. But the three criteria that were set forth by uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, will allow, it seems to me, a lot to remain. Uh, it's going to perhaps put in play uh, in cases, uh, any case that addresses one of those three as potentially uh, eliminating uh, 
almost an as-applied way that case rather than go after the whole doctrine. I just don't see it. Uh, on the last two questions, I, I think the, the, the first question involves things that they probably the court probably talked about already. Uh, I mean, they, they could have rescheduled it for oral argument and then allowed Justice Kavanaugh to sit in and decide. Uh, my guess is Sam Alito just found it impossible to vote in favor of a guy who was a pedophile <laughs> and wouldn't matter what they came up with. Uh, he's voted in favor of only two criminal defendants in the time he's been on the court. One was the famous fish case, whether throwing fish overseas violates the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And the other was in a case where the same uh, a prosecutor apparently violated Batson in a whole series of successive trials. Uh, my guess is that that's probably why you didn't see that re-argued. Uh, with respect to what's going to happen, I, I think the problem for the court is they're hoping somebody's going to be able to come up with a way of offering a concrete answer to the problem. Right now, defining what amount of delegation is too much is a little bit like defining proximate cause. How far can you go? And if you just pick a particular point here and there without a good explanation why this point, not the one next to it, you're acu you'll be accused of being just engaging in subjective, arbitrary types of judgments, and they're afraid of that. <coughs> so they'll need to have somebody in the academy or the community of lawyers uh, come up with some more objective way of doing it. Uh, just to, to follow up on uh, Paul's point and uh, to address just a bit further Ilya Soman's question, uh, even, uh, even Gary Lawson uh, thought, argued that uh, the Justice Kagan's opinion uh, was not without merits. I mean, it, it certainly was a defensible opinion in upholding um, uh, the position that the court took. Uh, so perhaps you can read the Gorsuch uh, dissent as erecting a presumption against delegation, but a rebuttable presumption that, uh, based on his three criteria, might be fairly easily uh, rebutted. That's all one over here, yes, sir. I guess generally for Mr. Larkin, but it seems to be another judicially created doctrine that sort of is an affront to separation of powers, and Justice Scalia pointed this out, was the Fieri's doctrine simply made up by the courts in, in, in contravention of, of congressional intents, nothing mentioned about one person suing another person just because they wear the same uniform. Do you think that this is the court that ultimately might see that and remove um, I, what I believe is, is, is a bar to access for a lot of people who may have a cause of action? Well, it depends whether there's intervening statutory law that will be said to have basically been adopted based on that common law doctrine that they created. Uh, I mean, for example, 
the whole question of sovereign immunity is a common law doctrine that attained a certain constitutional status, if you will. Uh, you know, even if you want to look at it as a different matter when you're dealing with the states, the, the federal government's sovereign immunity doesn't seem to be in the Constitution anywhere. They knew how to make sure that you couldn't sue somebody, and they put in this speech or debate clause. Uh, so it, to some extent, uh, it turns on whether there's a statute that would have been passed since then that they'll say, well, that will defer to that. They did that years ago, I think in 1980, when the question was whether you should exhaust administrative remedies. And they said the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act basically uh, covered the field and they weren't going to revisit the area. Uh, but I think your, your instinct that this is a court that doesn't like the idea of judicially made doctrines uh, is a good one. And I think you're right about that. Now, that doesn't mean conservatives or libertarians are always going to be happy. Uh, you know, young, the younger doctrine is another one that's just made up. Uh, and so... Uh, conservatives, I'm sure, would not be happy to see that go, but I don't remember anything in Justice Black's opinion that said there's any provision in the Constitution that requires we come out this way. Now, if you're as good a lawyer as Justice Kagan is, and she quite clearly is a brilliant lawyer, you can probably figure out some way by relying on different statutes and the like. I mean, what she did in Gundy, I thought, was just remarkable. Uh, I have a case in the Fourth Circuit that I'm hoping to position that way, but it just seems to be a continuing affront to separation of powers that just was created one day. Yeah, well, I mean, they're repeat offenders in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Wonderful. Um, we're just about out of time. Um, a brief note to our audience. We're jumping straight to the third panel, so please do not get up. They're just going to turn over this, uh, the, the podium and the dais and then we're going to start anew. So um, with that, please join me in thanking our panelists. That was great.